Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very much for listening to mine. This was a very interesting conversation with a man named Nathan H. Green. He is both a sci-fi author as well as a corporate attorney in Ontario, Canada. We had a very fascinating conversation. Here's something that I have been thinking about pretty much daily for the last, I would say, two years. The fact of the matter is that we today, anybody who can literally sit anywhere in the world and hear my voice is who I mean when I say we. We live in a world of momentous change. But I don't think this change is happening to everybody. And I don't think this change is happening nearly equally. Even in the same family or in the same community or in the same house. And I also think that our perceptions of what is possible in this world that we live in now are widely different, widely, widely different along those lines. And I wonder when that started. I really honestly, and maybe it's the historical training I've received, but I wonder when this started, this new era. My sense is it started at some point when the internet basically started to shrink the world on a more permanent basis. But even then, I I don't know when exactly that would be. I... I sort of fixed the Internet's proliferation, I guess around 1995, uh, maybe 94. Um, I know in talking to folks much, much younger than me, they, if you don't understand that there used to be a world where you couldn't call things just to your attention like you you couldn't just type buttons on a keyboard and just magically know for example at least to the extent that Google wanted you to know based on what they thought that you would be comfortable with to stay on Google what for example the death total of the Spanish flu was or the death total of the Black Death was in the 1500s or whenever the big outbreak of the Black Death was. So there was a a world before that. There was a huge, long world before that. But maybe, possibly, I don't know, within the last 10 or 15 years, we've increasingly automated intellect. And this has very troubling but also very amazing uh, possibilities. And and so far, at least in my 
personal life, I've I've seen the troubling aspects of it, but there are also amazing aspects of it. Um, one of the things that I love about being a podcaster and interacting with other podcasters is that without meaning to be, we're educators. We educate so many people. Um, I feel privileged to be alive in a time when I can go for a walk and and listen to one of these experts on the Mediterranean Basin talk to me about the fall of the Roman Empire or and that's his slant and, and talk to this this guy up in upstate New York and listen to him talk to me about his you know slant on the fall of the Roman Empire and previously you would have had to pay thousands of dollars to do this and you would have had to in the case of Patrick Wyman I would have had to relocate to Southern California and in the case of Dan Toller I probably never would have uh, encountered him and he probably wouldn't have a platform but here we are we can just have this platform and we can have you know an audience and you know and one thing I love talking to futurists about is these people sort of game this out in a world where we're all homo sapiens and we're all greedy and we're all, we all have problems and, and relationships with family and relationships with people and, you know, how does this game out in society and, you know, like that. And this guy, uh, Nathan Green, he thinks about this quite a lot. Um, I'm going to have him back uh, for sure. For sure on my show. I, I don't know when. I don't. We haven't made any plans firm yet. But he was very interesting. and He's a very interesting guest. And he's a, no a novelist. And I haven't read his novel. But I plan to. Um, because he's he such an interesting mind. Um, and again, if it hadn't been for you know the high speed internet and his connection and my connection, we never would have met each other, never would have interacted. But here we are. And to me, I think honestly, this this is the beginning of essentially a, a new age of man and, and I think essentially once and I'm, it's going to be private industry it's, it's going to be somebody like Google or somebody like Apple or or somebody like that maybe maybe Facebook uh, I hope not in Facebook's case but or maybe Twitter I don't know but somebody's going to come up with hardware for us to physically or at least virtually, physically, be in the same space, even if that space is digital. And I'm going to say, I'm going to put this out into the universe right now. One of the people I would love to talk to is somebody who is very knowledgeable about the underlying technology of the metaverse, 
so I can understand it better. Because there's a huge part of me, the part of me that was an investigator, that says, well, the, what the metaverse has been is the metaverse is essentially this massive scam that, that Facebook is is perpetrating on stockholders and, and the public. And there's another part of me that says the metaverse is this going to be this amazing thing that's really going to shrink the planet at least for those who can afford it and for those who want to be able to access it it's going to shrink the planet and we're going to have this understanding of each other and you know even if you leave aside the language barrier which I think is going to fall eventually I, I think I, I really honestly do I, I think the language barrier is going to fall eventually but even if you leave that aside Think how small the world's going to be if you can put on a suit and some goggles and be in a virtual space with anybody in the world. Think how you'd be able to to interact with that person and to, to understand, like, well, this is how they live their life. And it's not too terribly different from how I live mine and... You know, I, I don't really care what this so-called leader says about how I how I need to hate this person. Because we laugh at the same movies and we read the same books, but his book might be translated into a different language. But, you know, that's only because, you know, the monk leaving the Roman Empire went this way and taught his people this and so that translated into this language whereas a different monk went into this direction and so this translated into that language so why should I hate this person I shouldn't and again you know as you'll hear in the episode I I say you know I I don't believe in utopian sci-fi because I don't believe humans are perfect and I, I believe that corruption is with us I, I believe that corruption is a drive that humans have and I think it's a drive that comes out of lack comes out of a sense of lack and so I think after a fashion um corruption will be with us certainly for all of my life but but I do wonder if I was you know if I were to be silly and, and think well if I were a five year old but somehow I had my adult understanding of the world would I live to see the day when lack at least for a lot of people vanished because I think one of the things that this Thomas Friedman called it a flattening earth one of the things that this flattening earth this this world that's a small world that everybody communicates uh, I can totally see it now is going to bring about 
is a truly global economy in the way we've never on the planet had where it'll be great for average people. I, I honestly believe that. As long as the average person is plugged in to this the technology that that make the world smaller. And you know it's just amazing. Anyway, so this is Nathan H. Green. Um I want you to give this podcast a listen. Uh which of course you are because you've made it uh twelve minutes and fifty seconds into my ramblings. Um <laughs> But I want you to give this a listen, and I'm going to be putting out some pretty cool shows later. Um, And I'm planning one um, right now, actually, that I think is going to be really cool. Um, Anyway, um, like I always say, I'm having a good day. I really hope you are too, folks. And um, All right. Talk to you later. This call is now being recorded. Hi, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, and I'm here with Nathan H. Green, and we're going to talk about law, and he's also a sci-fi author. Nathan, how are you doing this Sunday morning? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here speaking with you. Thank you, sir. Now, off air, you had talked about uh, that you were a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, um, interested in the digital space. And as it turns out, I'm fascinated by this new world we're going to have. And one of the questions that I'm starting to have is, how would you even set up a company that um, might not actually have a physical location? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a really um, interesting and important question. Uh, now, just for some context here, uh, I'm an Ontario lawyer, and this is not legal advice. Don't, don't do or fail to do anything because of something I say. Uh, you know, it, it won't be, you know, applicable to whatever jurisdiction you're in anyways. Uh, and, uh, you know, even if you found yourself in Ontario listening to this, you know, I, I can't speak to your specific situation. But with that said, um, there's been a problem for probably the last, you know, 50 years um, as travel has gotten a lot easier and people were able to jet around the world setting up companies wherever they liked and doing business across, uh, across borders. And the question became, well, you know, gee, where is this? Where is this company to be taxed? What laws apply to it? Where do you sue it? Um, you know, if it's, uh, if it's a company based out of Panama, but it's doing business exclusively in Canada, and it's, uh, its ownership and its directors are all in Canada, is that a Panama company or is that, an, is that a Canadian company? And uh, we've had, you know, a lot, of, a, a lot of spilled ink trying to sort out those questions. And we've, we've had some answers, but they've all been kind of weakened as the decades march on. 
you know, for a while it was, you know, well, where is the management and control located? And, you know, okay, so that's easy enough. If you hold your board meetings down in Panama, it looks a lot more like a Panama company than, in a, you know, than an Ontario company. Uh, but, you know, what if you set up a Zoom call with five different people and the Zoom call is being hosted on a server or a computer in Panama, uh, or one of the people is in Panama and another is in, you know, the Philippines and another is in, you know, Florida and another is in, you know, Australia. So we've made the world a lot more complicated and all these kind of simple tests have been really challenged. And one of the things that lawmakers have been trying to do in recent years is figure out, well, okay, how can we reform the system? How can we, you know, identify where things should be taxed, where money should be taxed, where, you know, which laws should apply? Uh, and it's it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah. I mean, so let me throw out uh, a scenario that today is a little far-fetched possibly, but possibly not in five or ten years. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, what if you, okay, let's say like there's a company in the metaverse and it meets in the metaverse and does business in the metaverse, all in metaverse money and it's all virtual. All the money's virtual, all the offices, if you want to call them that, are virtual. All the people are at the end of the day virtual. I mean, there's people, there, some of these people have Homo sapiens connected to them somewhere on the other side of a rainbow. But some of these people might not be people at all. Some of them might be computers. Mm -hmm. You know, um, what are, you know, what do you do? Yeah. What do you, um, what do, you do? <laughs> it, it's, it's a really cool question. And, and one of the, um, one of the problems that you have in law is it's, it's easy to forget the men with guns test. And the men with guns test is where, who are the men with guns who show up when you do something bad to stop you from doing it? Um, and, you know, like arrest you, take you to jail, like you didn't pay your taxes. And so, you know, if you're in Florida, you know, I, I guess it's the FBI, like, uh, again, I, I don't know, like which law enforcement agency would show up. Maybe it's the Treasury Department, maybe it's the local sheriff. But, you know, it's, the, it's an, an officer of the United States government who's going to come and get you if you're in Florida. And if you've done something bad in France, it's not the French police that are going to get on a plane and fly over. You'll be, you know, you'll be arrested by, you know, the Florida, you know, uh, the Florida police. And there'll be a treaty between the United States and uh, France. Uh, and it will dictate, you know, how you're extradited over to France and all of, all of this. Uh, but... You know, it's it's based on, you know, the United States acknowledges that you might be in the United States and yet still violate a law in France. And so, you know, we have to we, we have to take this into account somehow um, in the metaverse. There are no men with guns like you, you can't have that. But the person who controls the server, the person who controls that software can still do things to your digital entity. They can remove your intellectual property. They can, you know, strip you of your offices in the metaverse. They can take away your metaverse property. They kind of become the, you know, the men with guns, quote, unquote. Right. Um, and if that's, if, if you know those people, if you don't really know where they are, it 
raises some very interesting questions, doesn't it? Like well, the it does, and I can already see your so-called men with guns test. I can already poke a hole in it with this, right? Because think about it, okay? Like so, in Florida, right? Presumably, somebody voted on the sheriff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a government office. Mm-hmm. But nobody did that with Facebook or whoever's going to actually control the metaverse at the end of the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody did that with Facebook. And you can already, I mean, you can already start to, today. You can already see this problem happening because, like, I've been online since I was a kid. I was, I don't know how old I was, right? But I've had to, and I'm one of those weirdos that actually reads the terms of service for email providers and for Facebook and whatever. I'm one of those weirdos, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but here we are with using Facebook and Twitter, and it started out when we were younger, and now it's like we're adults and we're doing adult stuff on Facebook and Twitter. Right. And we're as adults, we're saying, yeah, but I didn't drive to the pool or to the polling station and vote for you to do this. You know, (laughs) I, I get it. I mean, I get that. But I can totally see like a generation of kids hanging out in the metaverse and then becoming adults in it and then having adult problem or having adult interactions in the metaverse. And the men with guns are, at the end of the day, they're a, it's a Facebook employee or an algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I mean, so you read the terms of service when you sign up for a platform. But yeah. when they send out one of those emails that say, hey, our terms of service have changed, do you diligently review those changes and understand them in context to the document? Well, one time, not normally now these days, Mm-hmm. But one one specific time I did, and that was when, do you remember, are you old enough to remember when Facebook had basically a Dropbox utility? Oh, yeah. I signed up for Facebook, uh, for Facebook right away when they uh, became available. I've, okay. I've got a very old Facebook account. Okay. So you're old enough to remember they had this Dropbox utility that you could put papers in, like you could put mm-hmm. school papers in and shuttle them around to your friends. I, you know what? I'm not sure I ever actually used that one, but I, I I'll, I'll take your word for it. I did, and it was really cool. But then I guess a lawyer might have tapped Mark Zuckerberg on the shoulder and said, "Hey, like if you, you know, anything you put in Facebook is automatic is Facebook property. So do you really want somebody putting their thesis or their you know or their PhD paper or whatever you call that?" Uh, in this Dropbox utility and then having that be Facebook property. So they changed, they took away that utility and they changed their terms of service to reflect it, to better reflect it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, the reason I asked about the terms of service um, was because you're probably like one person in a thousand who actually bothers to read those things. 10,000. Yeah, they're more than (laughs) 10,000. And and even you, the most the most diligent person imaginable when it comes to your online behavior, won't follow the changes because they can change them 
you know, 180 degrees. There's no, you know, there's no reason why you should assume that the terms of service, you know, today of these services you're using are anything like the terms of service that you read and reviewed and agreed to. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a problem. Uh, and, and even on top of that, if the service decides that they're not going to abide by their own terms and they just, you know, do something outside of those terms, where is your remedy for that? I, I mean, like, okay, exactly. so you as an individual, you're going to sue, you know, you're going to sue Meta and, you know, you take a look at the contract, you've got to go to California or something to sue them or, or whatever it is. I mean, I think that there was, um, recently a service you had to go to the Netherlands or something to commence arbitration proceedings. I, I think that might have been Uber or something like that. But, um, I, I mean, just extraordinary barriers to enforcing your rights with these services. Um, mm. And, yeah, we didn't vote for any of it. I, I mean, more and more of our lives are being controlled by this stuff. And we don't know what the rules are, and we don't know how to enforce those rules against the provider, and we don't know what to do if something goes wrong significantly. Or, like, even so, I'm, I'm looking at Reddit right now. So Reddit is the classic example of this. Reddit is an amazingly useful tool in the abstract, but each little subreddit has rules that are sometimes enforced and sometimes not, okay, by different people that you've never met. You know, you, mm -hmm. know, you, you, you don't know these people. You don't know what their issues are, right? And... I mean, every day I use Reddit, I, I, I can just totally tell that when they made, whoever made this, when they made it, it, it became something they did not understand, they were not planning for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, they probably wanted, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at its core, Reddit has a brilliant mechanism, this is upvote downvote, where mm -hmm. things that get uploaded gain more prominence and things that get downvoted lose prominence. And that's, you know, posts and comments. It's, it's amazing how you shuffle information when you start doing that. Um, and, and I've had some unbelievably rewarding experiences on Reddit. Uh, and, you know, some not so great ones too, but, you, you know, it's, it's a very powerful platform. It is, you know, for connecting with people. I mean, I've gotten a lot of guests off of it, but I've also run into problems with, like, I put something on Reddit that's just like, hey, this is my podcast, and suddenly that's self-promotion. And for some reason, you can't do that on a lot of boards or whatever. Right, but and and meanwhile, if you have a marketing department, you can just guarantee that a bunch of users will randomly upload it. Like, you know, okay, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna intentionally target Reddit promotions and we'll give people things that are easy to, you know, post on Reddit and Reddit friendly. Uh, but, you know, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's okay because we're doing it through a PR department. But it's not okay when you do it because you don't have a PR department. You're, you're too small a fish. Exactly. Or, I mean, and I could, this is a hobby horse of mine. I, I dislike this website immensely. But, but I don't want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about the future of, like, the future of, of non-physical. I mean, that's just, it's so fascinating sure. to me. I talked to a futurist who kind of clued me into this reality that five years from now, we're going to be living in this whole different world where, 
you know, you're going to be able to interact with people digitally in ways that you, we really can't do now. And ever since then, I've been thinking, like, what happens when you murder somebody digitally, but they're still here, but their digital thing is not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, or, <laughs> imagine um, imagine a pair of augmented reality glasses that you put on, and um, mm. you know the the people at uh, the people at a department store, the, the, the sales associates wear them. And when you walk into the department store, a number of pops up above your head with your credit score, and that's all. Mm. That's all this AR implementation does. Oh, or maybe criminal arrests as well, right? So like. Oh, you know, this person has a credit score of like, you know, 230 and they've been arrested five times. Uh, you know, instantly you're stigmatized. Instantly you're stigmatized. And, or, you know, oh, this person has, you know, a phenomenal credit score. Uh, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna treat them as a VIP. You know, or they buy all sorts of stuff from our store. You know, and, and we don't have a way to say as a society, uh, no, we're not happy with this kind of technology. Uh, ever even existing. We we have a way as a society when this becomes such a huge social problem, you know, lawmakers are forced into action to do something about it, but we don't have a way to really get ahead of this stuff, and, and lawmakers in the Western world are pretty bad about thinking proactively and getting ahead of, you know, the ills of technology. Exactly. I mean, one of the one of the structural problems, I think, in my own country just without even being political too much, is we basically live in a gerontocracy in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of digital problems that that people my age or people younger than me or people with kids see through their kids that maybe the the lawmakers just don't even know about. Right? Like, you know what I'm saying? And Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. Like, how do you have how do you have a conversation with your grandfather about sexting and like, oh, you know, this is how you know this is how kids today interact and like, I mean, kids, but like, you know, if you're a 22 year old or something like that, mm -hmm. and you're you're behaving in a completely normal fashion for a 22 year old among your peer group, um, mm -hmm. you know, your your grandparents who might be legislators <laughs> would have no idea what you're up to. And and wouldn't wouldn't have any conception about you know what your yeah. world looks like, uh, and, but you know exactly. they're supposed to legislate for it. Exactly. Um, so we were talking off air about digital signatures, which I think yeah. are I think just from somebody I'm I'm pretty intelligent, but I don't know anything technologically about those. But I can just because I've had to use them. I can just see how that you could fake that, right? I mean, that's that's fakeable, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there are all these vendors for digital signature solutions who will tell you that their digital signature is like solid as a rock, right? And and you'll you'll get all sorts of promises like that. Um, and I, I think my biggest concern with with those kinds of statements is. I don't quite understand how I would be able to reliably take that to a judge and convince them of that fact. Like, if if I have trouble understanding this and following it, I'm not the one who has to be convinced. Like, 
if if there was ever a dispute over one of these documents, it's it's a court that has to understand and has to be convinced and has to know what the what the pitfalls are and whether this argument you know makes any sense and you know is this even possible with this you know with this signature. Um, so yeah, lots yeah. of um, yeah. you know lots of lots of questions there. One of the things in in law is we've got hundreds of years of of precedents of people doing really really odd things, um, and and we know quite well how signatures work and how physical documents work, and we kind of know the limits of those. Digital is a different story, and mm-hmm. and it's it's so new and it's so evolving and changing that we just don't have the the kind of depth. So there's a famous uh, there's a famous right. case where a farmer is out plowing his field or whatever he's doing, but he's got a tractor with him. The tractor falls on him, and he's pinned under the tractor. And he knows he's dying. There's no one that's going to come and save him. And he writes out his will on the on the body of the tractor. I, you know, I don't know if he was using blood or he just scratched out, but, like, he writes out a will. Uh, you know, and it, you probably said something simple. I forget what it said, but, you know, everything goes to my, you know, my wife or everything goes to my son or whatever it was. And there was a case about, you know, is that a will? And is, you know, does this meet the requirements? And da 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 da. Like, there, you know, we've got, we've got legal precedent on that. I heard about a case, you know, a few years ago where someone made, someone write out a contract in blood. Like, and it was just like a loan or something silly, but, you know, they, you know, they wanted to add extra weight to it by making this person use blood. And, you know, the court took a dim view of that, as I recall. Uh, and so we've we've got this buildup yeah. of people doing really weird things like that, uh, and we just you know we haven't been around long enough with these digital documents to see people do weird things with them. And I want to add something to that that maybe, well, you might have thought of this, but I wonder if the guy who made the digital suit thought of this. When you talk to people like in Ukraine or places all over the world, right? What you notice is, what I notice, is they're very talented, they're they're hungry, and they also are very determined. If you take a very determined person that has to think about their physical survival, but is also technically proficient, highly technically proficient, I wonder how long it would take them to crack a, digi- a digital signature. Right. <laughs> yeah, or even if not, you know, even if not necessarily crack them, like, um, you know, I, I don't know if you're a fan of, like, you know, heist movies and, like, heist stories through mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. but, like, often, you know, the way that, the way that people bypass safety systems um, isn't necessarily, like, a brute force kind of, oh, I've completely defeated this, it's, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, I'm, I kiss my wife and she, you know, in her mouth she's got the lockpick tools and, you know, and she passes them to me that way and then I sit for hours and hours with the, these lockpicks in my mouth and, you know, pick my way out of the handcuffs or whatever it is. Like there's, there's sleight of hand, there's trickery, um, and, you know, how these digital systems, um, deal with that kind of thing. Is and 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 how people interact with them too, right? Because the vulnerability doesn't necessarily have to be within the digital system. You know, you you could see on this your computer screen that you know something comes up saying, "Oh, this is clean," 
but you know the the screen is the the failure point right like the person plugged in something to your monitor to display the wrong thing or you know whatever sleight of hand it is to generate uh this there, this there was a famous hack a little while ago years ago now that was they hacked in through the smart thermostat that was bizarrely wired into the thing the hacker wanted yeah <laughs> yeah like, I, I mean, I really wonder why the U.S. government and then really Western governments haven't uh, imposed laws on on device makers like key device makers. You know, you, you make you make routers that are going to go to 100 million people's homes. Like, why isn't that code being approved and vetted by the government before you just put, you know, those routers into 100 million homes. Why, you know, why can you just write any code you want for your smart thermostat or your your, your smart camera, uh, you know, that's connected to the internet, and then, you know, years later, it's discovered that, oh, yeah, these 50 million cameras, all of a vulnerability, and it was because, you know, they used the cheapest bidder for the, for the software. And, like, if anyone had even glanced at the software who, who really knew what they were doing, they would have gone, well, this is irresponsible. You shouldn't be doing this. What was the, there was a, I, I don't want to throw the wrong, uh, antivirus software under the bus. But there was an antivirus software that was widely used and had, it won all these awards and blah, blah, blah. And then people find out, oh, this was manufactured in Russia. And also, <laughs> like, they had close ties to the Kremlin and people had to back up and, like, take it out and uh, oh I remember but I'm not going to say it yeah. but yeah <laughs> I, I think there was uh, I'm trying to remember uh, what the details were uh, I believe though that there was a um, telephone company that made secure digitally encrypted phones that they, they sold commercially and it was just the CIA like the CIA spun up a corporation, they they made these encrypted phones, they sold them every, you know, all the criminals, all the other governments were using them, everyone was perfectly happy, and it's just the CIA <laughs> listening into everything that goes through those things. Well, you know, it's, it's like, it's like Tor, the Tor browser, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm the guy reading the terms of service. <laughs> well, the Tor browser was made, you know, by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And in the terms of service, it actually says, like, this browser was made, quote, this browser was made by the U.S. government to to bring freedom and whatever else all around the world. So maybe don't plot, you know, the overthrow of the U.S. government on this browser. <laughs> <laughs> it says that in the terms of service. It says that, it says, and I quote, so maybe don't plot. <laughs> 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 whoever whoever wrote that is just like a real smart aleck and funny, funny, funny. But you know, but it's like you, wow. Yeah. Um. I, I. Yeah. Right. I. I mean, and you're you're only ever taking other people's words about this kind of stuff. Like you do a security audit on the Tor browser, and you, you know, okay, I'm. I'm incapable of doing that. Like, you give me the, show me the base code for the Tor, show me the base code for a website, and I won't be able to read that. Show me the base code for the Tor browser, I've got no chance at all. 
And, you know, it's only that someone tells me that they're an expert capable of doing this that I had any reason to believe them. And, and you know, mm. how much can you really, you know, like, I can't, I, I can't even look at what their qualifications are and ask myself whether they would be capable of doing this, let alone whether they would do an honest job. So we're, we're really in a, a world of trust here. Uh, mm. And... You know, I'd probably trust, you know, a few different countries getting together with adverse interests and saying that, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll all approve this software. You know, like if, if the U.S., if the U.S. government, China, and, you know, oh gosh, who, who else might we bring into the mix? Like, you know, a Spain or a Norway or someone like that. You know, if they all reviewed the code for your home router and said, yeah, this is, this is fine. There are no vulnerabilities here. Uh, oh, you know, I, you know, suddenly I like the sound of that just because, you know, well, they're not all going to be in cahoots about this, you know. Well, if, if China said there were no vulnerabilities, there, there actually are vulnerabilities. China wants what, what, to exploit them. China on their own. Like, if, if it was just China saying anything about, you know, web security, yeah, no, I, I would not believe that at all. But if, you know, if the United States and China and Norway, like, if those three people looked at a, a set of code and said, yeah, we're okay with this code being used by hundreds of millions of our own citizens within our own borders, and we've, you know, we've, we've parsed it, it, it's secure, and we're happy with it, that would actually give me some comfort. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, right now, the closest I get to comfort with technology is when, uh, you know, the government tries to shut something down because they're unhappy with it. Suddenly I'm going, oh, well, maybe that's the one I should buy. You know, like, oh, Apple, you have to install a backdoor. We're very unhappy with you. Ah! Well, since I've got a lawyer um, on the phone, and no, this isn't personal legal advice, but since I've got a lawyer on the phone, in this country, the, the courts have said repeatedly that code is actually free speech and free speech is protected. So what you were talking about earlier, you'd have to amend that so code is not free speech, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not a U.S. lawyer. I can't speak to, you know, U.S. First Amendment law. Um, but to say that, you know, you need, like, so, like, people will point out, like, the I think it's the ESA or, or something like that for, you know, electrical components in your house. They're certified by, you know, some, some kind of industry group that says, you know, oh, yeah, this is, this is safe to use. Um, but if that, was, if that was a matter of government regulation, if there was some, you know, department where any time you make a device that could set people's houses on fire, you have to send it to them to get an approval of the design. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, would I object, like, would I have, like, some, you know, horrible, you know, liberty concern about, like, no, I want, I want the cheap LED th things that I can string around my bed that will burn me to death in the middle of the night for no reason. <laughs> like, I, I insist on being able to right. have those. Like, uh, no. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't mind, like, if people want to make a, if people want to make a really, really, really violent video game. That like 
you, you know, you put that on and, you know, someone walking by goes like, oh, my gosh, you know, what, what is this? How, how can this be legal? Like, then I'm happy to jump onto the First Amendment bandwagon and, like, no, 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 hold on. We've got free speech. You know, you should, you should be able to make what you want. And, um, you, you know, it's for the market to sort things out. But, you know, if someone says, like, well, I want, you know, I want creative freedom to be able to make, you know, router code for home for home network wireless routers any which way I want yeah. to make it. Like, really? Yeah. Like, so, I, yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that gets back to the geriatric um, legislators. Because me, if I heard that, and I'm about as pro-free speech as it gets, but if I hear that, I'm like, okay, wait, why? Why do you want to have free speech with router code? I want to know why. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Or, or you, you know, I, I mean, there's also perhaps a question about um, how long in the tooth the Constitution uh, becomes, where you mm -hmm. say, you know, look, we've got, you know, we've got principles that have worked extraordinarily well for hundreds of years. Um, and, you know, now we find ourselves with the, with the changing world. And... Mm -hmm. You know, when do you when do you start saying, well, you know, are we going to rely on the Supreme Court to kind of try to massage updates, or are we are we going to take, you know, the interpretation of these words that we've had for hundreds of years that existed perfectly well, you know, in the 1850s, uh, and we're going to amend or like we're going to change that interpretation because necessity today says that's what we need to have, right? Um, and and that I, doesn't seem right to me either. So like, I agree I, with you. <laughs> I agree with you. And I mean, I think you know to be silly for a second, but I think if Teddy Roosevelt were, were around and a president today, right? Teddy Roosevelt would say, "Well, router code is not free speech." Okay, <laughs> all right. You know, this is a modern and, and by problem. The way, and, and by the way, I mean, I'm accepting. I'm accepting the premise here. Uh, you know, you've, you've said to me that it's free speech. We can't, you know, we can't regulate it. Um, I'll, I'll accept the premise of that for the purposes of the discussion, but I'd still be surprised if really, if the government tried to say, listen, uh, if you're going to put out router code, if you're going to, if you're going to design the code for nuclear power plants and water treatment facilities, we can't regulate that code and we can't make you submit that to an agency to get it approved that it's decent code. You can just do whatever you want, and and the only thing we can do about it is decide not to do business with you. <laughs> like if we're if the government's the one building the nuclear power plant, we can say that we won't use this vendor because we're not happy with their code. Yeah, I mean, I I only know from like a software perspective, like you know a commercial software perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. about like from from a uh, nuclear power plant. I would be shocked if nuclear power plants are under the same standard as like well, you know word. <laughs> I I think that I think that if we actually got into a question of how the code for nuclear power plants was written, reviewed and approved, people would probably be shocked. Like it would probably be a shocking thing. Oh yeah. I'm certain and yeah. and it's not just i i mean it's not just nuclear power plants like it's your your gmail account the the potential to harm people mm -hmm. with bad code in 
in Gmail, it, with bad code in, you know, your, your home router, with bad code in your home thermostat. Uh, it's, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Shocking. Yeah. Or like, do you remember when, um, like email used to not be email? Like email used to just be basically a toy almost. Mm-hmm. And do you remember, I think a few years ago, when I think I forget if it was Google or one of those companies it was leaked out or it came out somehow that they have employees reading people's email. Just you're like, <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> what are you doing? You're, no, don't read my email. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and, and you know, legislation. You know, legislation at this point in time is probably a good thing for. Terms mm-hmm. of service and how we're gonna, you know, how we're gonna deal with that. But even if you get legislation in the United States, and this is kind of circling back to where we started all of this, are you telling me that all you have to do is move a stack of computer racks from where they're sitting in Florida to, you know, Mexico or mm-hmm. or to, you know, Peru or you know or wherever it is, Iceland, and suddenly those rules no longer apply? And you can, you know, you can, you can do yeah. whatever you want. It's, it's a real challenge for governments. Oh, oh um, I can take it a step further. You probably couldn't do this today, but you could probably do it in ten years. You could move routers into the ocean. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the ideas <laughs> you know. I had. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things I've been kicking around in my head is what if Elon Musk says. My satellite-based internet system is not going to conform with any of any laws on the planet Earth. Where I'm going to provide internet free to everyone, and it can't be blocked. You know, like no website can be blocked for any reason except I decide I want to block it. So you know, I'll I'll play nice on you know things like you know child pornography. I'll play nice on uh, you, you know. Um, you know, websites that are trying to sell nuclear material. <laughs> but, 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 you know, like, I, I think, like, if Elon Musk said, you know, I think that people should be able to buy and sell heroin freely on the Internet, and I will, I will support that through my satellite network. Right. What are you going to do about it, world governments, right? Like, these are, these are, you know, in space or out of your jurisdiction. Uh, well, you, you know, <laughs> what, what do we do about that, right? Well, you know, and here's a question that I keep running into because of what's going on in Ukraine, right? And mm-hmm. what's going on with Russia. When these people, when these people like three generations ago set up this world order, they never anticipated that you would have, that you would have like this elderly world leader that was obviously going through some sort of brain problem or whatever. Like, yeah, okay, he probably wants somewhere, he probably wants to take over Ukraine, but he's also willing to nuke people. You know, like, it's medicine is causing problems. It's getting where medicine's causing problems nobody thought about. Yeah. I I mean, if you, if you, if you were if you were an alien and you came to Earth and you you saw the world's like nuclear weapon situation and you said, well, wait a minute, explain to me why you know ten people 
on your planet. Mm-hmm. Acting acting in concert would have the authority to wipe out all human existence. Like why why is that the system that you want to have? Or you know, I think it's I think it's even less. Like I, I, if you actually ask the question of what is the lowest discrete number of people who would be required to wipe out humanity? One. It's, yeah, it's probably well, one. I I think you need I think you need two or three in the United States. Like. But but you know maybe China's different maybe Russia's different right like I, I mean yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be like single digits and yeah. and low single digits right. and and why would we as a species ever agree to have that system in place where two or three people could could end us as a species just because they felt like it yeah like Putin gets up and has a bad day and wants to start World War Three so. Wow. Okay. Right. It should be totally unacceptable. <laughs> it should be totally unacceptable to everyone in the world that you know our our existence is in the hands of just a couple of people. Uh, and and you know this is yeah. you know this is kind of specific. Like it's it's a weird thing how nuclear weapons came about and their power is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So it's it's a unique situation that we dealt with. But I personally suspect. That as we go forward in time, we're going to be put in situations where this becomes more and more common. So, if if you don't mind me branching into science fiction here a little bit, absolutely. If, if you imagine a spaceship that was capable of hauling ice from from a moon of Jupiter to uh, you know to, from one moon of Jupiter to another moon of Jupiter, it's just a it's just an ice hauler. It's a junker. It's a cheap garbage spaceship yeah. of the future, right? Like, there'll be better military ships and all this, da-da-da-da-da-da. If that, if the ship's pilot said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm having a bad day. I'm, I'm going to go full throttle all the way from here to Earth and just, and just plow this sucker into, you know, North America or something. That one person has the power at their disposal to kill hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And right. and that's for that's for a nothing job, you know, the captain of you know an ice hauler, uh, where we could have you know tens of thousands of people with equal or greater uh, power at their disposal. Yeah, I mean, wasn't that what the book Fight Club was about? I mean, you know, these people in, with these minimum wage jobs actually have a lot of power over people's lives. Well, that's, I mean, that's a collective, yeah. right? Like, if, if you have a society where you've got an underclass, and the underclass, you know, does something that you don't like as a society, uh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of first say, well, you know, look, you, you know, your problem was you had this underclass in the first place. Um, and, you know, we should, we should probably talk about that as well as, you know, yeah, they've, they've got more power than you think, like the, the, the underclass uh, as, a, as a collective group. But... If you're talking about a single individual who says, you know what, I'm, I'm unhappy with the world, for whatever reason, my wife left me, I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm not being remembered the way I want to, you know, like no one, you know, no one thinks I'm important. Um, it, it happens you know, more frequently than it should that airline pilots decide to take their own lives and, and take their plane with them. And but what happened if that plane had the kinetic energy of you know fifty atomic bombs? Right, and that's that's something, you know, like 
so with this futurist that I talked to, you know, that told me about this world that we're going to be living in in five or ten years, he's European, right? He was mm-hmm. British. As soon as I got off the conversation with him, my thought was, I want to talk to an American futurist because America is going to have, like Europe's going to have problems that America doesn't have in mm-hmm. five or ten years. But we're going to have problems that they're not going to have again. Because, you know, whatever. And, but like you were saying, yeah, okay, do I think an underclass should exist? No, but they do. You know, so, <laughs> now, it'll be interesting later, whenever later is, when America, in, you know, watching how this war happens in in Ukraine, it'll be interesting to see how do the American people start thinking, why are we paying the Pentagon this much money? You know, like, mm-hmm. like yesterday I saw a video of a Russian tank that couldn't even make it down a hill. And I mean a gentle hill. Okay. Mm-hmm. And like, we shouldn't be spending this. How many more videos like that do I have to see before I start thinking? We shouldn't be spending this much money on our military. They can't even make it down a hill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, like... Oh, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean... <laughs> you know? I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I like technology at the end of the day. And because mm-hmm. of that, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to... Um, it's a bit hard to, you know, really... Um, you know, poo-poo military advancements, and especially like some of the some of the biggest single line item programs that have the um, you know the the least you know chance of success. You know, like ballistic missile interceptors and you know stuff like that, where we spent you know billions and billions of dollars, and you know then we missed by like twenty miles or something. Um, you know, those those programs have a certain uh, appeal to me as you know a, a science fiction fan. Uh, and, you know, uh, yeah. but I see where you're coming from, right? And, and the U.S. military spends a huge amount of money. There's a huge amount of social resources that are, that are, instead of being used for the betterment of the lives of the people directly, you know, it goes to, you know, it goes to military spending. Um, and that, you know, and that brings other interesting benefits. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, Russia's, Russia's kind of changing the world right now. By how bad a job they're doing of, exactly. of this Ukraine invasion. I mean, you know, but you've been very patient with me, and I let's talk about your science fiction that you wrote. <laughs> so, oh, thank you very much. Um, so um, my my book's called uh, The Galileo, oh. and I don't know if you uh, remember uh, this old book called The Right Stuff, but there was there was a movie. I uh, saw it was the movie. very. Yeah, yeah, very, very kind of big impact on me as a kid, and uh, mm. this this book is the right stuff meets the original series of Star Trek. It's about a ship that can just barely manage its job, a heroic but flawed crew that's discovering that after being away from Earth for three years, the rules and standards they set off with don't work in space. The first aliens they meet have a hard science fiction technology that I think will inevitably develop ourselves. And it could well destroy us. So, 
the, the you know that's kind of the the premise of the book. Earth's first faster than light ship traveling out into the galaxy and uh, discovering that the future is a dangerous place for mankind and and one that is going to challenge us in ways that we didn't expect. All right, cool. Um, is it out now or are you writing it? It is. It's out now, available on uh, Kindle and uh, soft cover on Amazon. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. That that does sound cool. And the thing, I love science fiction that 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 is grounded in reality, and that sounds very grounded in reality. Like, I... As far as grounded in reality, what I mean is like, so have you ever seen the movie, um, oh God, don't blank on the name of the movie, uh, Matt Damon, Jessica Tastain, Casey Affleck, the world's ending, they have to go into space, uh, not Inception, but, oh Jesus. Oh, uh, oh, uh, Interstellar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Believe it or not, I love that movie. <laughs> Even though I couldn't think of the name. The reason yeah. I love that, the reason I love that movie is because it's grounded in like, this is how people would be. You, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, I was, I, I am very much on the fence about that movie. Uh, and certainly the last couple of years have made me, you know, think kind of more highly of some of the initial premises where, um, you know, oh, we'll deny the moon landing ever happened because that's, you know, that's what we're, you know, being told more and more and, you know, how easy it would be for, for society to kind of get, get twisted in on itself. Um, so I, it's a great movie. There's no question about that. Um, yeah, I, I, there, there was always something about it that struck me as a little off though. Uh, I, I guess maybe I just didn't like the ending. Like it was so hard science fiction right until the ending. And then I thought the ending kind of went really soft science fiction. Uh, and it just, it just flipped things over and I, I, yeah. I didn't like the change of tone. Uh, but you know, every, everyone's got different tastes on this and it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous movie. Like it's a gorgeous film and the thing I love about it is the Matt Damon character. I yeah, that he that. does that he that he can't sacrifice his own life at the end. I, I mean, it's uh, it's such an interesting idea. I, I, I have a hard time believing it, honestly. Like, it, but it's it's very human, and you know that you know that humans will make bad choices for themselves. That will that yeah. will cost the species and will cost us all. People make bad, you know, you put really bad people in, not even, and see, I don't even think he's a bad person. I think he's a person that didn't want to die. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is, mean, to, which is completely understandable. It's completely understandable. And, you know, I get it. And loneliness does things to people. And what he was alone for how many years? So loneliness does things to people. And also, like, I mean, that's what I loved about it. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm not a utopian science fiction guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I do like the darker side of, mm. uh, of things, especially from a storytelling perspective. Uh, I don't have a very optimistic view of the future. I, I see far more challenges arising and, and very difficult intractable challenges than I see uh, easy 
solutions. What are some so, of the challenges you see? I'm going to see if we're on the same page. Well, okay, we were talking about underclasses. So yeah. I think that we're going to have widespread automation in our in our lifetimes, and it's going to hit faster and harder than the Industrial Revolution uh, ever, ever hit. And mm. we're going to discover that suddenly a ton of jobs that don't require a lot of... Um, a lot of complex thinking, like really, you know, kind of high-order thinking, are going to be automated away. So, you know, if, if you're a receptionist, you know, I think mm -hmm. your days are kind of numbered until an AI answering system from Google just completely takes over your job. Uh, if you're mm -hmm. a warehouse worker, I think, you know, again, you know, auto loaders and, you know, machines with one, you know, with a hand to pick things out of, of boxes, that is going to be a thing and it's going to put you out of work. If you're a truck driver, like your days are numbered. If you're a, if you're an Uber driver, your days are numbered. And, and I just go through this list of industries and there's so many jobs that I think are going to be impacted by this. And, and now I, I, I'm a lawyer. I think this could very easily put a lot of lawyers out of work too. So, you know, don't, don't get me wrong on that, but I think they'll also yeah. always be, you know, a human role in the legal profession, even if it's just to, you know, guide people and sit them down and talk to them about what this what this computer system is saying that the law is. Um, however, uh, I I kind of imagine like these these two grids. Um, one is you know one is intelligence, and the other is you know just physical attractiveness. And if you're not a beautiful person, where you're always going to be in demand because you know people will want to interact with you, and you know whether that's you know, whether your job is glad-handing customers, whether your job is, um, uh, you know, appearing on videos and speaking as a spokesperson for things or as an influencer on social media or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're not gifted with beauty and you're not gifted with above-average intelligence where you're going to be able to figure out some, some angle to work or whatever, uh, you're in this quarter of the population. Uh, well, what is your job going to be? And, and how are you going to have work? And what if among, you know, among that quartile of the population, we had a 70% unemployment rate? How would we deal with that as a society where we say, uh, listen, you know, 15% of people are out of work permanently and they will never have a job. And more than that, they know that they'll never have a job because they're not, you know, they're not pretty enough or they're not smart enough. And and like they're, and they're telling themselves that more than more than anything, and it's it's kind of true. Um, I, I mean, that's toxic to our future societies. I, I mean, yeah, I, like that's that's I'm, really really a bad place to be for us, and I think that's where we're marching. I get it, but I've got another one. I've got another one, right? So hear me out. We live on a shrinking world, right? Mm -hmm. very soon we're going to be able to have like I've already got what I call virtual friendships with people all over the planet right all over the planet that's the reason I had to silence my phone okay right <laughs> is because I might get a text from some you know some other country mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so what happens when you start I want to meet these people. And it's not a matter of let's go fly somewhere. It's a matter of let me put on that virtual reality hat 
in the virtual reality suit and let me go meet these people. Mm-hmm. Right? And then what happens when you hit it off with some of these people and you want to live there, right? Mm-hmm. That and that's going to destabilize immigration right there, legal or otherwise. Now add to that the fact that you've got a lot of virtual jobs now and that's only going to increase, right? So people, it's like now you have states in America and provinces in Canada competing for companies. What happens when they start competing for people? <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Like, I, I think that, you know, yeah. it, it could no, well push thing. governments. Yeah, it could push a lot of governments in the right direction. Like, if China suddenly discovered that, like, oh, my gosh, you know, we have a lot of people leaving. Like, we, we educate people at, at universities. We give them a good education. Uh, we give them really, really useful job skills. And then, you know, we're losing like 30 or 40% of them. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to use like a hypothetical number in some future where, you know, everything mm. was easier and people were mo- more mobile. Um, if, if that was a policy problem for the government, mm. you could imagine them being more, more regressive and, you know, and doing bad things. But you could also imagine it being a drive to, um, right. to progress and say, well, we've got to give people a better life. And we're going to have to, you know, make it very attractive for the average person to want to live here. And to want to I, live I here think, or there, yeah, wherever, yeah. yeah, wherever, wherever that government, you know, wherever that government saying here is. Um, and I, I think that's yeah. probably a good thing. Like, I, I don't think governments give that enough thought right now. I don't. Well, uh, to, I, I am not in the government, and I didn't give it any thought until two years ago, <laughs> right? And now I see it, like I see it every day, and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, if I could choose to live anywhere, where would I live? Do I want to live here or there, or blah, 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 right? And mm-hmm. then also, you think about, so I know somebody who used to work in the self-driving car world, you know, mm-hmm. programming self-driving cars, and he would never tell me which company he worked for, but it's a company that doesn't currently have or didn't at the time have a self-driving car. I don't know if it does now or not. Mm-hmm. But he said that actually, Ben, the self, the myth of the self-driving car is just that, a myth. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's too many problems, right? There's too, you know, like the car can't, you know, do this or do that, or the car can't, like one of them was the car can't, um, look for traffic going the wrong way. I remember he said that specifically. Like they couldn't fig- mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out how to make the car smarter than the dumbest person that has that has a driver's license. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Or whatever. And so I'm of the opinion that you're always going to have like short range delivery at, at the very least. Right? You're always going to have that. Um, I also think we're going to have space colonization within my lifetime. Honestly. Um, because like you're saying, you've got to give these people a job. Yeah, you just do. Well, I, I you know, I, I mean, you know, if you look at the demographics, right, like, and, and you say, well, you know, like, if I'm right, right, and we, we through automation, we create an underclass. Um, that's, yeah. you, you know, 
are is that underclass the one we're going to want to send off into space to do to do colonization work and are we going to are we going to say yeah you know we figure that you know because we're sending people without university degrees out to do space colony work and and people who you know couldn't get university degrees even if they really really tried um we're going to lose a lot of them in the process but it's okay because the, you know we don't have anything for them to do here like wow you know it's it's that is a yeah. You know, that's, that's crazy. And maybe that's how colonization always worked, right? Like you, when, you know, whenever you try to expand in, the people who are, you know, doing the hard work of establishing a new civilization somewhere inhospitable are dying off left, right, and center. And they, they are members of an underclass because they're the only ones who would even be willing to, you know, give up a comfortable life because they didn't have a comfortable life to yeah. give up. Um, well, so like, I, so like I have a master's in history. And beyond that, I'm probably better educated in history now than I was when I got my master's. And you're right, actually. The colonists, by and large, were always the underclass. And that's actually what they did, was send their underclass to America. Right? Yeah, and, so, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it works out great. Like your underclass, yeah. you know, your underclass is underutilized, right? You've got some persecuted religious minority. And, and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do fantastic. <laughs> you know, as soon as you take your boot off of their throat, you know, that was the only thing that was making them an underclass in the first place, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. But like, to, to say that, you know, we're gonna accept higher, higher debts, uh, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna put, put people in another class into a bad life, uh, to try to exploit them even more. Uh, you know, it's a scary, it's a scary social development for me. Uh, but, you know, the self-driving car thing, so my take on technology is that it becomes inevitable as soon as you're able to do something at even the most rudimentary level that it will improve 1% a year, 2% a year, 5% a year, 50% a year. Every year it'll get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better to infinity. And so when you say, like, okay, there's too many problems with self-driving cars, well, you know, the list could be 10,000 items long. But every year, if you're knocking items off the list, inevitably, the list comes down to zero. And then you have a perfect self-driving car, which you don't even really need. Like, if people were only getting killed in self-driving cars when they're getting into head-on accidents with drivers going the wrong way, you know, we'd probably yeah. still get into the self-driving car and just take the risk. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. But he also, I mean, I remember this specifically. He also, like, brought up, one of the big problems of self-driving cars that the, wasn't even technological, right? It was legal, which is what if mommy and daddy are busy, right? Mm -hmm. So mommy and daddy put the five-year-old in self-driving car X, right? Mm -hmm. And program self-driving car X to take the five-year-old to daycare. Mm -hmm. And for for a given amount of time, because the five-year-old wants to go to daycare and play with their friends, right, that happens. And then, say the five-year-old grows up and becomes 10 or whatever and decides, no, 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 we're going to take the self-driving car to hither, thither, and yon. That was something that this company's legal department said was that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Like, oh yeah, yeah. 
I, I mean, I view it, I view it as a little less of a problem than others might, um, because I, I think that we just have to adapt to a different, uh, mindset where we view those self-driving yeah. cars as, um, as yeah. tools, um, where, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't worry about this about a bicycle. You know, the fact that your 10 year old can, can get on their bicycle and instead of riding to school, ride to wherever the heck they want to go, you know, that's not a liability problem for the bicycle company. But the reason um, that is is because the 10-year-old is shackled by their leg power, right? So maybe they can only bike so far. But that same 10-year-old in a car could go to from, you know, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> well, they could, they they could, yeah, they could, wind up, they could wind up in Tijuana. <laughs> right. <laughs> or however I, far it would go on a charge because it's probably also electric. Right. Uh, like, um, anyway, Nathan, um, thanks a lot. Uh, this was great. Um, do you want my to add absolute, anything? No, just, uh, again, the, the title of my book is The Galileo. It's available on Amazon. Uh, and it was an absolute pleasure being on here today. I had a wonderful time speaking with you, and uh, I think thank, we had a great discussion. Thank you, sir. Yes, we did. You can come back whenever you want. Hang on the line, please. Absolutely.